Hey baddies, I am um overwhelmed. <laughs> you know, whatever. I do these witchery. Oh, happy Black Witchery Month, first of all. Uh, you know, when I do these witchery stories, I get overwhelmed because I come up with like the I come up with the idea. I didn't come up with Medusa, but I'm like, you know, I want to really talk about Medusa. She's someone that's been in my mind a lot lately. She's someone I've always had kind of a kinship towards. And then I'm like, I totally know this story. Like, this is going to be so easy to tell the baddies. I can just do it off the top of my head. Oh my gosh. Why do I keep falling for this? <laughs> it's the same thing with Salem. I start with this idea that this is going to be so easy. And then I start reading and watching and digging and thinking and writing. And it gets totally out of hand. And I get so wrong <laughs> about it. And it's going to end up being a two-hour episode, probably. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But I can't wait to talk about her. I know we're so like, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I feel like I've built up your anticipation so much. So I'm hoping I can really deliver on this episode. Um, I just quickly want to say my dad is home from the hospital. He is doing really, really great. And so I am just so thankful for, to all of you for the spells you cast, the rituals you performed, the prayers you sent, you know, the blessings that you gave my family. I know that a lot of his recovery and a lot of the strength that I was able to have and a lot of the strength I was able to give my mom was because of the support that I got from all of you. And I said this in my post on Facebook, and I'm going to say it again here. Um, just getting a like tiniest sliver of what a caretaker role for a family member is like, I commend any of you out there that do that. It is the hardest thing in the world. It's not that it's just physically taxing and it's exhausting and you're sleep deprived and you're, you're stressed out. It is so emotionally taxing. Like you just want to crumble and you want to cry and you want to give into these fears that it's never going to get better. And any of you out there, any of you witches out there that are taking care of family members, taking care of loved ones, I just think you're phenomenal and I applaud you so much. And I hope that you are taking care of yourself because I know it's really hard as a caretaker to take care of someone else. And it's just, it's tremendous. It is a tremendous thing to take on. And I am so proud of you out there. If that is a role that you find yourself in, I know you're doing a great job. And I just want to tell you from like experiencing it, just, I mean, it's one of those things that you hear about people doing and you're like, man, that must be really hard. But then when you actually experience it even just a tiny bit, you're like, oh, okay. I had no idea what this was like. So yeah, I just want to say that I support you. And if you don't feel like you have any support in the world, I am sending you that support. I'm sure that your fellow baddies that are hearing this are sending you that support. It is a role that is, it's just hard. It's incredibly hard in every sense. And I am proud of you. If you're out there doing it, you're taking care of someone. I am proud of you. I commend you. I think you're amazing. I hope you know you're doing an amazing job. I hope you know that, you know, you're giving someone kind of the ultimate gift by being by their side and taking care of them when they need you. So caretaker baddies out there, I love you. I'm proud of you. You are all doing amazing, sweeties. Um, is there anything else we should really talk about? I want to just get into the episode because it's going to be a lot. We have so much Medusa to cover. I'm basically... Okay, so you know how I get really overwhelmed, right? So I tried to break it down into three kind of sections, but then I found this whole other mythology about her. And I'm going to tell you her story kind of two ways, but they all kind of intersect with each other. I don't know. You'll see. I'm not even making sense right now. <laughs> um, anything else? 
Oh, Mercury goes retrograde on the 17th, I believe. So that shadow period is uh, lurking all around us. But, you know, I think if we set the intention now and we put it out there, we're going to have a beautiful, successful, abundant, generous, uh, prosperous, lovely Mercury retrograde period, then we will. I mean, the beginning of the year is pretty shit. So <laughs> maybe Mercury retrograde will be pretty awesome this time. Oh, by the way, welcome to Bad Witch Podcast, the podcast where we are going to get our witch shit together one spell at a time. Uh, yeah, so I'm ha- I'm headed back to Portugal for my birthday this year, kind of as a do-over, because as we know, Mercury totally came from my life and soul, and I got, I don't know, food poisoning on my actual birthday. Um, I, uh, Delta, no shade to Delta, I love them, I still work with them, but they did lose my luggage, but you know, it's cool. I was in Spain, and my luggage was chilling in Atlanta, so I am going to have like a do-over birthday this time, and I'm really, really excited. And I think Mercury's going to be gentle to all of us, because the beginning of the year was just, uh, it was a lot. It was pretty rough. Although, although I know there's those of you out there that are like, no, it was great. It was like the best month I've ever had. It was so everything I ever wanted came true. But I, I think the consensus I was seeing, you know, on social media and talking to my friends was that it was, it was a bit of a rough month for a lot of us. So it gives me a lot of hope going to Mercury retrograde. And, you know, I really do believe the better, the happier, the more positive intention we set for that period, the better it goes sometimes, (laughs) or at least our outlook helps us deal with the things that may go a little haywire when Mercury decides to, uh, spin it all around backwards and turn our lives backwards in the process. But yeah, it's coming up on the 17th. We have Valentine's Day on Friday. So I am not going to do a Valentine-centric episode, obviously, because that is this week. Wait, is it on Friday? Did I make that up? When is Valentine's Day? (laughs) Okay, it is on Friday. Today's Monday. Okay, y'all, I'm topsy-turvy. But last year, there was a, like, very Valentine-centric episode called Don't Hex Your Ex. And then I also did the full love episode in the fall, which is called, I was about to say, it's called My Love Don't Cost a Thing. And that is not true. That is just a bomb J-Lo song from 2000 or whenever. Uh, what is it called? Oh, Crazy Little Thing Called Love. So if you want to give your loving fix in some bad witch uh, retro episode, retro, it's been a year. Um, but you know, vintage episodes, then we do have those two. And Don't Hex Your Ex is actually pretty Valentine's Day centric. I think I released it like the day before Valentine's Day, but it was a Thursday, I'm guessing. So yeah, those are your two fixes. We won't be having any love talk except for my love for Medusa, which is what we're going to be gushing about today. So yeah, I think that's it. So let's do our Patreon shout outs real quick because they will be our first ones for February since I wasn't here last week. And then we will get into the story of Medusa. I still can't believe how many people joined last month and they were almost at 50. That is like the coolest thing ever. So thank you so much to Maria, Crystal, Maya, Jamie, Kala, Aurora, Cassandra, Adam, Bren, Kara. <laughs> I always like really think about it now. Kara, Kelly, Ashley H, Emily, Nolling, Melissa, Heidi, Brittany, Lena, Jennifer, Ashley P, Ashley S, Melissa, Brandy, Tabby, Tabby, that's, I love your name. Uh, Teresa, Kim, Sarah, Sam, Teresa, Vanessa, Sasha, Celine, Brett, Megan, Elizabeth, Amber, Carla, Aaron, Shannon, Bree, Adrienne. Let me know if I'm saying your name right. And Amanda. Ah, that's so exciting. There's so many new names on there. Ah, love it so much. Okay, so you're all obviously my Valentines this year, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> 
No, I love you truly so much. And really, I, I do think of you as my Valentine's because I have so much love for you and you all share so much love with me. And that is what Valentine's Day is all about. It is about love and friendship and family and not just that kind of like romantic love notion that we get sent on. You know, I love a Valentine's Day, even though we did all steal it from Parks and Rec, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, it's a beautiful legacy. Legacy. It's a beautiful legacy that continues on that we can celebrate, you know, friendship and especially female friendship. And not to say that all of you identify as women, but I am just saying that my love for you is not necessarily a romantic love, but it is a really true and like honest love. So you're all my Valentine's this year. Thank you so much for the Patreon support. Um, it's just really kind of you. I know I say that kind of every episode, but it is really kind of you to like take a little bit of what you have and support someone else with it. So I really, really appreciate it. I love all of you baddies. You all really did get me through this really rough period. And I know that I can always turn to you for support. And I hope that you feel the way that same way about me. And I hope you feel that same way about the entire coven. And also our Facebook group is all, almost at 1000 members, which, huh? <laughs> like, what? I know I always say this too, but I never thought more than like a hundred people would listen to this podcast and more than like a hundred people would be in the Facebook group. So the fact that it's almost at a thousand, I don't even know what, what, what to do with that. Also, um, I accidentally deleted a few people. <laughs> I didn't delete them from the Facebook group, but I accidentally deleted your request because I didn't have my glasses on when I was going through them and I was trying to hit approve. So if I accidentally deleted you, please feel free to um, request again. The answer is the craft. I'm giving it to you early this week. I'm so sorry. I actually deleted you. I felt so bad. And there's no way, like once I do it, I can't, I can't undo it. Like I can't mess. There's nothing I can do. Your name just disappears. So I'm so sorry if that was you, the craft, I will let you in immediately. You can even like put a note in the answer. Like girl, you deleted me. <laughs> I will let you right back in. Okay. So let's start talking about Medusa. I've been trying to figure out when thinking about the episode where to put this thing I'm about to say, <laughs> this tidbit, um, if I should do it like in the opening of talking about her or should I talk about it when we get to that part of her story and her mythology. But I think I'm just going to start with it at the beginning and then we're going to circle back to it at the end. I don't know. There's no linear structure for this episode or any episode I've ever done. <laughs> but basically, it is my theory and has been my theory and the thing I'm going to go with, which I feel like has been confirmed with like more of the research I was doing into all of this, that Medusa is a witch of color. Okay, so first off, she's a witch. We're just going to go with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I she's a goddess. She is a mythological creature. She is a mythological figure, I think would be a better word, actually. And, um, I consider her a witch. I do. I know that every time I do one of these witch three episodes, I'm like, so, um, anyway, they're a witch, <laughs> but it, I feel like it gets confirmed along the way. Uh, but yeah, I think that she is a witch of color, a woman of color. And I know when we're thinking about this like classical period and antiquity and the ancient Greeks and the Romans, we always are thinking of these figures that are white. You know, always. And kind of the iconography of that time period and the fact that all the statue, statues and um, iconography have literally been whitewashed and had all the color removed contributes to that. But I really do think, I do think and I have thought that Medusa is a woman of color, a witch of color. And so I think she is kind of a great figure to start Black Witchery Month with. Because for a second, I was like, well, it's February now. And should I do Marie Laveau first? Because we know she's a woman of color. But... 
I talked about Medusa endlessly in the last few episodes. I was like, well, I don't want to come back. And then I'm like, so surprised we're not doing Medusa after all. I didn't want to do that. And also my original argument for her being a witch of color is that um, she has been vilified for her hair and her hairstyle. And that's something that modern black women deal with constantly. So that was the only basis I was working with for a while. <laughs> but like I said, the more I got into the research and the more I learned about her story past antiquity and ancient Greece, the more it became like a confirmed thing for me. So I am counting her in the canon of Black Witches with Tichuba and Marie Laveau and Rochelle from The Craft, even though she's a fictional character. She's based on, you know, real Black Witches are out there. So yeah, uh, she is a witch of color. And that is something to keep in mind when we circle back to her like North African and Libyan part of her story, which is where I think the witchiness of it all really kind of comes together too. So it's gonna be, y'all, we're gonna talk about so much. It's gonna be really, really interesting. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily my intention to focus on witches of color. I've just kind of realized, oh, it's February. Things have been really crazy. We are in Black History Month and I have like nothing prepared for that. As a black witch, I should be doing a little better with that. Um, but yeah, it kind of all worked out. But I was prepared to just make the argument that because she was persecuted a lot for her hair, she was a witch of color, <laughs> just so you know. All right, so we're going to start with the Medusa of, we're going to start with Homer's Medusa. Then I'm going to talk to you about Ovid's Medusa. I'm going to tell her, tell you her real story, the real, the real mythology. Um, and then we're going to go into Libyan Medusa. And then we're going to talk about Medusa like nowadays and kind of in popular culture and well, not necessarily just in popular culture, but we're going to talk about her image throughout the ages and kind of a connection with Lilith as well. And also some of her, um, I don't know, just how she has, her legacy has like maintained on and how people after the, like the death of Medusa happened, how she was still so relevant to like any culture throughout time that recognized her. Does that make sense? Let's stick with it and see how it goes. Okay. So let's talk about Homer's Medusa first. Oh, and disclaimer time, because, you know, we always have to have a disclaimer in every episode. I am in no way a scholar of uh, classic Greek. What? Classic Greek? Ancient Greece. <laughs> I am not a scholar of ancient Greece, nor do I speak classic Greek. So uh, if I mispronounce any words, I'm sorry in advance. Please be gentle with me. You know, a lot of people, I read this thing recently about how we should not be like so harsh on people that mispronounce things because a lot of us learn words from reading and not from hearing it or speaking it. And so it's just our brain, you know, trying to process how we would pronounce this word phonetically most of the time. So I'm so sorry if I mispronounce anything. It is not my intention, but it certainly may happen. If you happen to be a Greek scholar out there, first of all, why didn't you tell me before this episode started so I could have you on? <laughs> and secondly, uh, if I totally butcher any of the names, I, I hope I have not offended you. All right, so, oh, and also I took notes on this as if I was literally like taking a class on Medusa because I, there's so many like aspects of her story I wanted to tell. So I'm going to try to not just read them full out, but there are little blurbs that I'm going to interject that I kind of want you to be thinking about in this discussion about her. So I made this so like a class presentation. 
<laughs> Sorry if I'm like triggering you with memories of history class. But um, the headline I wrote was Medusa, obviously. And then under that, I wrote, because I want you to keep this in mind, is she victim or villain? Is she prey or predator? Or And is she woman or monster? Okay, so the Medusa of Homer and of the Iliad and of the Odyssey, which disclaimer number two, I have never read either of those. I'm a really, really bad English major. <laughs> you would think I would have read these like really important classical Greek works, but um, I didn't. But I did watch like the episodes of Wishbone about them back in the day. So I think I feel like I'm pretty ready to talk about it. I also watched Troy, the Brad Pitt movie that came out in 2005, like, I don't know, 20 times in theaters, because that's when I was going through my Brad Pitt phase. So like, I've been prepped, you know what I mean? So anyway, <laughs> we have these early mentions that go back to the 8th century BC, which is like Homer's writings, or not necessarily writings, but like in the oral tradition of storytelling, where we get mention of Medusa because she, the Medusa head or the Gorgon head is featured on Athena's Aegis, her A-E-G-I-S, which in some translations is like protective clothing and in some translations is the shield. We are going to talk about it as the shield. It is kind of, I think, more of a popular translation to go with shield, especially because Athena is always pictured with her shield and she is this warrior goddess, right? So that is the Medusa we're going to start with. But the Gorgon, the type of creature, I kind of hate using that word because I do think of her as a woman, but the Gorgon is the monstrous depiction. And this creature has been present in different cultures and different languages and different, um, different traditions way before we even think of ancient Greece. It's included in ancient Greece, but going beyond that, you know, years and years and years and centuries beyond that, you see this figure pop up all throughout the ancient world where they have the tusk, they have the like big bulging eyes, they have the snakes for hair or snakes incorporated some way into their visage, and they have the gnashing teeth. Now, <laughs> you know, this has always really reminded me of, and I kind of it kind of came back to me when I was doing all my research for this episode, is if you ever read Where the Wild Things Are, which if you grow up like my generation, of course you've read it, it's everything. But they talk about the wild things and how they have these wild lolling tongues and these gnashing teeth and these huge eyes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are the wild things based on the Gorgons? Because I kind of think they are. And they live on this island, right, that Max goes to. And the three Gorgon sisters, when we break it down, are on this one island. Anyway, it just made me think about that. If you've made that connection too, we're on the same wavelength, of course. So yeah, they've appeared. You have all of these like old statues and these... Um, like reliefs and I think is edifice the right word on these ancient buildings and temples that shows this figure. In fact, I think it might, oh, I don't want to say the wrong culture, but I think it's either the Aztec or the Mayan civilization where on their calendar, they have this kind of gorgonous, again, kind of character with the tusk, kind of the boar's tusk, the tongue, the, the eyes. And I don't think it has the snaky hair, but it's something similar that you see, again, all throughout the ancient world. Different cultures, totally separated by language and time and space and travel, but they were all kind of acknowledging this figure. It's pretty cool. So here's a story of the Gorgons, the three Gorgon sisters. So they are three daughters of the sea gods, Forces and Seto. Seto, I'm never sure which one it is. And uh, Homer describes them as fearful monsters, fearful and terrible which I mean, same. <laughs> and I think even the word Gorgon in classical Greek means terrible. 
I think so. I think it's, it's either terrible or like fearsome. I'm not sure which one. So we have the three that are going to come up throughout her myth. There's Steno and her name means strong and forceful. Get it girl. And her kind of defining feature, cause we don't know as much about the other two as we do about Medusa, but her defining feature is she has red snakes for her hair, which that sounds like an iconic fashion look to me. And I think I'm going to do that for Halloween this year. I love the way that sounds. And then we have Uriel. I always say her name wrong. I mean, I always say her name wrong since I started doing the research for this. But it is E-U-R-Y-A-L, Uriel. And uh, her name means far roaming. And she is known for her bellowing and fearsome cry. So in the story of Medusa, when she is, spoiler alert, beheaded because... These witch stories, man, they never end well, do they? It's the whole thing. When she is beheaded by Perseus, it is um, Uriel who sends out this, like, horrible screech because she is, like, wounded as her sister is wounded. She is horrified this, that her sister was just killed. It's We'll get back to it. So that is what she is known for. And then Medusa, which her name means to protect, to guard, and to rule over, which we are definitely going to come back to. She is a protector. She is a guardian. She, she's just everything. I just love her so much. And so, um, along with that name, she is known as queen of the Gorgons. Now it is believed by some that Steno and Uriel are immortal and that, uh, they were born as these monsters and that Medusa is mortal and that she was born as a human. It kind of depends on which story you're going with. It kind of depends on which translation you're going with. And then when we get into Ovid's version of the story, we'll really talk about how she was human and all the things that she went through as a human, how she became this monster. Spoiler alert, Athena had a lot to do with it. And we're going to have some words about that. <laughs> all right. So talking about Hesiod, um, he is the one that described them as not having this. So the snakes have always been in the equation. They have not always been that it was like a crown of snakes or a hair of snakes. But he describes them as women with snakes hanging from their belts. If we are going back even further past Homer, we're looking again at different cultures, different um, oral traditions, different beliefs, different countries where these mythologies all kind of exist in a similar way. We do find that every time there's a woman that is supposed to be portrayed as monstrous, as horrible, as ugly, as vile, as demonic in some ways, there is a lot of inclusion of her either wearing snakes, controlling snakes, having snakes wrapped around her body. The snake is a symbol that, hello, let's go back to the Old Testament real quick. I forgot for a second. <laughs> let's go back to the Old Testament for a second. And the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Adam and Lilith, actually. And we have the devil presenting himself as a snake to, like, you know, cause all of the first commotion in the world. So yeah, it was Hesiod who said, I'm still saying that wrong, who said um, that the Gorgons were women with snake hanging from their belt. So then we go on to Greek scholar Apollodorus, who describes the Gorgon sisters as having scaled heads, large tusks, and golden wings. Now, if you ask me, I think that sounds pretty awesome. I think they must have looked really cool. But you know, that's not a look for everyone, but I think that sounds pretty badass. So um, he also describes them as sometimes having beards. So if you remember when we were talking about the Scottish play, the witches uh, that, you know, do the double-double toil and trouble and all of that goodness, they're also described in kind of a similar way with the withered skin. Uh, so scaled, you know, snake-like skin, withered skin, not that far apart, and having the beards. There's something about, even we see it with the Grey sisters who are also going to come up later, where whenever there's a woman that's supposed to be low, that's supposed to be fearsome, that's supposed to be monstrous in some sense, they give them beards. And 
I'm not sure where that comes from. I don't know if they're trying to like unsex them in a way and by making them less feminine, they take away some of their beauty and sexuality and that's what, you know, men are really attuned to when looking at a woman. If we become more hideous, the less feminine we become or something. I don't know. Or if it's just like a woman with a beard is something that you wouldn't necessarily be used to seeing in ancient Greece. So if someone saw one, they'd be like, well, so, like just seeing like a birthmark, like a mole, like all these things that are witches marks that we've talked about. If that was what was off-putting just because it was different back then, I don't know where that comes from. But it's something we see a lot in the description of witches and especially in the description of like crone, the crone witches and the crone goddesses, where um, that figure is withered, it's old, it's like the witch in Snow White. I'm surprised they didn't give her a beard to be honest. Because <laughs> they were going for it. They were like the one step before. So I want to talk about the wings for a second. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I am obsessed with the concept of sirens. I love mermaids. Like I wish I could be a mermaid. And I don't mean in the sense of Oh, it'd be so fun if like, you know, if I could be a unicorn or a mermaid, I, like I would pick that. No, like I wish I was a mermaid. Like <laughs> I wish I had a tail and I lived in the water and I had seashells on my boobs. Well, I guess like would I have to cover my boobs because like I'm in the water and we don't suffer under the like the impression of the patriarchy so I can just show my breasts because it's fine. But you know, I wish I had long flowing mermaid hair that I decorated with seashells and what's that thing called? Seaweed skirt. I don't know. Whatever. I literally wish I could be a mermaid. <laughs> If mermaids ever come out to be a true thing, I'm going to be devastated that I didn't get to be one in this lifetime. But yeah, I'm really obsessed with mermaids. And I've always been obsessed with sirens because I love the idea of that kind of power, honestly, that it subverts the idea that all women are worth is their beauty and being alluring and attractive to men. And that actually can be like the downfall of a lot of people. And we control all the power in that realm, if that makes sense. And um, also one of my favorite episodes of So Weird is the one with Joel Slate. Slate? I, I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name, but she was also on Fast Forward with Ben Foster. I'm going on a whole thing. But uh, it's the one where she's the siren. I love that episode so much. I've always been obsessed with sirens. And in some traditions, they are really kind of our modern conception of what a mermaid looks like. But in other ones, they are more bird-like and they have these claws, these talons, and these beautiful wings. And I just like got stuck on the wing trope concept for a second because I love it. I know that in these descriptions, again, it's trying to other these women, it's trying to turn them into creatures or monsters versus humans. But we see it with the sirens, we see it with the Gorgons, we see it with Lilith that she's able to fly away. Um, I think that these wings represent like the total freedom that a woman can have. And so I'm really, really into this. I know it's not I know it's supposed to give us the opposite reaction, like this is something unlike us, so we shouldn't be attracted to it or like it. But when we look at these creatures, I gotta stop saying that word. I feel like they're not creatures. They are women. You know, I don't want to like put them down to like a lower common denominator because that's not how I think they should be framed. But when we look at these women, they aren't bound to anything that is like a property of the patriarchy. They are powerful and they fear no man. In fact, men all fear them. And with all of this, they have wings and they have the ability to fly. They have the ability to get away from any situation when they want to. They have total freedom. So I really like the concept of the winged woman. <laughs> I know it's supposed to like have all these negative connotations. So when I'm thinking about the Gorgons, I'm like, oh yeah, snake hair, bad skin. Well, not bad skin, but you know, scaly skin, you know, sometimes snaky tails. It's this whole thing. 
I didn't know that the wings were necessarily associated with them, but when I found out, it made a lot more sense because like what gives you more freedom away from patriarchy than being able to look at a man and literally turn them to stone. Love it. Wish I had my own wings. Also very much the wish I was a mermaid. So that covers the Homer, the Hesiod, and the Apollodorus structure of Gorgons, how we know of them in the Iliad and in Odyssey, and how we get like a little bit of a relation to Athena and also the concept of the Gorgon head on the shield being a protector, which again, we will be coming back to. And I have words for Miss Athena, don't you worry. <laughs> so, the story I am going to tell you now is very much based on Ovid's telling of the Medusa myth of the Medusa legend. And that is coming from his writings in the Metamorphosis. Originally, I think we all learn about Medusa in this very flat, very one-dimensional way, which is she is a monster. She had snakes for hair. She turns men to stone. That's it. That's really what a lot of us learn about her. And I understand why, especially because I think a lot of us learn about Greek mythology and Roman, you know, mythology in a very like short time frame, usually in like elementary school or middle school where you just do a unit on it, you know, and you kind of just get through it. And so if we are telling this actual story of Medusa, it might be too much for younger people to handle. And so I understand why. And also it's easy to always frame Hi, this is a very feminist episode. I don't know if you picked up on that yet, but it's very easy to frame this female character as a monster and she just is a monster and, you know, because we said so and that's it. But this is why when I learned, I told y'all I lived in France for a year and there were no, I couldn't watch like any DVDs because they weren't formatted for France versus the US and I had like some in my apartment that were left over from the person who lived there before. And I think I watched Hitch, that Will Smith movie, a hundred times. I'm pretty sure I watched it so much that with the French subtitles, I could do the whole thing in French. It was horrible. So I ended up um, using my iTunes credits because, again, I had a lot of iTunes credits in 2010. I don't know why. I haven't had any sense to buy this show on the History Channel. That I actually found the exact episode on YouTube and I was so excited. I was rewatching it. The show is called Clash of the Gods. So if you want to look it up on YouTube, uh, go for it. It's the episode that gave me the real tea on Medusa. But so, okay, I was going to share it in the Facebook group, but uh, the sound drops out like three quarters of the way. <laughs> so I was like, oh no, it was this great like 45 minute episode. That I was like, it's going to be so fun for y'all to watch and like get all the details I forget to say. But the sound totally drops out. It's a mess. And then I found a couple on YouTube that were like, uh, Clash of the Titans. Uh, Clash of the Titans. Okay, so yeah, Medusa's in that as well. But Clash of the Gods, 1-3, uh, 1-4. One, one, I was like, I'm not posting seven parts of this. So you can listen to my telling of it. And if you really want, I will post the episode. But just so you know, the episode, the, um, the volume, is that what I'm trying to say? The sound drops out like three fourths of the way through when you're going into the story of Perseus, but you're not quite like at the end yet. Okay. So anyway, we are going to do the story of Medusa now from Ovid's Metamorphosis. And here are the trigger warnings for this story. We are going to be talking about rape. We are going to be talking about sexual assault. We are going to be talking about some victim blaming that takes place. And at the end, we are going to be talking about her being beheaded. So it is like a little violence as well. 
Um, but I really want to do the trigger warning more for the sexual assault. If you feel like you need to step away, I totally understand. Um, but if you are you know, not triggered by any of that, then let's go ahead and tell the story because I do think it's really, really important that we don't just go by the perception of Medusa, but we get to learn her truth in so many words. Okay. So Medusa, which isn't that such a great name? I mean, like literally to be, to mean like to protect the guardian queen. I love that so much, but I just love the way Medusa sounds. I can say it all day. All, like well, over the past few weeks when I've been like trying to gear up to do this episode, I just like say her name all the time, Medusa. It just sounds so good. Okay. Anyway. So Medusa is this extremely beautiful woman in ancient Greece who has this long, beautiful, flowing hair. It just, when I picture it, it's just like, you know, if you just have like silk springing from your head and flowing down your back, just so beautiful and beautiful in the way where like every man desired her and every woman kind of wanted to possess that kind of beauty as well. It also reminds me of the story of St. Agnes where we're just talking about this beauty that was all encompassing and was like really intoxicating to other people. And the other similarity is that despite this like overwhelming beauty and the fact that she had so many people that wanted to be her, her suitor was that she dedicated her life to being a priestess of Athena and serving Athena and being in her temple. And of course, with that, you know, priestess position, especially in serving Athena, who is this virgin and chaste goddess, that means that virginity is a really, really big part of that. Now, I have already ranted about the, sur the, social, wow, the social construct of virginity, so I will not do it in this episode, but just know that being a virgin is key to the worship of Athena, Athena's story, and in the story of Medusa. So, Athena's temple is the Parthenon, which is also the temple of the gods. And Parthenon, I didn't know this, which I literally was at the Parthenon this summer, um, but the name translates to Place of the Virgin. All right. Had no idea. Um, is there anything I want to say about the Parthenon? It's really cool. I'm really glad I climbed up there on the top of the Acropolis. Uh, if you have not gone to Greece, but you were planning on going, definitely do that part. Just know that a lot of it is made of marble and marble is very slippery, especially because it has been worn down because people have been going over like, what's the right word? Not over climbing, have been climbing the Acropolis for millennia to go up there and to worship and to build and to do all of these things. And so it is very, very dangerous. And I'm not kidding. Like number one, it's always, it's all like mostly on an incline because you're climbing up basically a mountainside, but also because a lot of it is marble and a lot of it has been polished down over centuries and centuries and centuries, people just fall. I saw like six or seven people fall when I was there. And because I went with my mom, I was just, we just like held each other the whole time. And I made sure I was always behind her. Because like a lot of ancient sites you may go to, there's also no fencing or railing around anywhere. It's just out in the open. And there's a lot of amphitheaters around it. So if you fall like, okay, bye, what are you supposed to do? So this is just travel Mickey coming through to tell you that if you're ever going to climb the, climb the Acropolis to go to the Parthenon, be very careful because it is extremely slick. I'm not kidding. I saw like six or seven people fall and it wasn't like, a trip. It wasn't like, like you kind of stumble to your knee. I mean, people were falling. It was wild. And you know, in the U S everyone's afraid of getting sued. So there's just signs up everywhere and like guardrails and stuff. And in Greece, they're like, I mean, good luck, do what you gotta do, but you know, be careful, trust me. But going up to the Acropolis and the Parthenon, it really was this really amazing moment. 
because, you know, I believe in the gods and goddesses, obviously. I believe in all these figures being real. And it was just such a freaking cool place. It was so spiritual. It was so charged with energy. The vibrations were insane. And the peace that you feel up there, it's, it's just different from anywhere else I've ever been. So yeah, 1010, 100% recommend going to the Acropolis and going to the Parthenon if you're in Athens. Athen, Athens also is named for Athena. She is the patron goddess of the entire city and kind of like of the ancient world in a way because Athens was such an important city. Um, and when I went to Athens in 2010, because that was my second time going with my mom, uh, I did not have such a favorable opinion of her because of this story. <laughs> so let's get back into it. So again, uh, Athena's temple is in a temple of the gods, which means place of the virgin is the Parthenon. Not to be confused with Pantheon, which is like the array of gods and goddesses throughout the ancient world. I always used to call the Parthenon the Pantheon as if that was the building name. It's not. So don't be a dummy and say the wrong names like I used to always do. <laughs> so anyway, inside the palace, there was this massive ivory and gold statue of Athena that was kind of the centerpiece, centerpiece of all of it. Uh, it was said to be like, I think over 40 feet tall. It was one of these wonders of the ancient world. I don't think it was like a official wonder of the world, but it was one of these things that people were like, it was a sight to behold, right? Which again, being there in person, it's just crazy to think that people would make that trek all the time to go up there and worship. Like it's not an easy climb at all. I mean, for people that are like actually in shape, it's probably an easier climb. But just thinking, like, I grew up going, driving 10 minutes down the road, parking in the parking lot and walking into church versus people in ancient Greece and in the ancient world that would climb up to these temples that were all kind of built on high to be in these these spaces they considered to be really religious and spiritual and to be, like, closer to the realm of the gods, you know? In fact, from the Parthenon, you can see this other temple that's built on this way higher peak. And I could never figure out what exactly it was. And I honestly should have just asked someone but I was like, people climb up to this, like, all the time. The priestesses that are, like, serving in this area, this coming up and down, they did it constantly. Like, Medusa did it constantly. It's amazing. I don't know. I, it just kind of takes you all in that it wasn't something that people did as coming up to the sightseeing tour to make sure they don't miss this landmark. But it was a part of their daily lives. Uh, it's really, really cool. So anyway, there is this massive statue of Athena to honor her in the temple. So here comes Poseidon. Let me say something. Um, so at first I loved Poseidon, not knowing what happens because he is the god of the sea. I am water sign all over. And I always think of him as King Triton, who, you know, tough, but fair. He loved his daughter Ariel. He just wanted the best for her. He was a single dad doing the best he could. But uh, me and Poseidon do not go together anymore. Like I am not down with him because I am so appalled by what he did to Medusa. So we have Poseidon, the god of the sea, storms and earthquakes. I think of him as like destruction personified, which being the god of the seas, when I think of the water, I think of sea. I'm, I'm not one of those people that has a fear of the water because I always think of it as this life giver. I think of it as this gentle force. I think of it as just like the sensation of laying in water and letting it carry you. But on the other hand, you have to think of it as like one of the most destructive things in the world. I mean, floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, you know, even volcanic eruptions and how they cause tsunamis. Like water can be really terrifying and open water, especially can be really terrifying and all the things that lurk in open water and what's down in like the depths where it's pitch black. I know 
it can be really scary and overwhelming. And after learning the Medusa story too, that's more how I think of Poseidon now. So he's less this King Triton kind of cute, cuddly figure who accepts Prince Eris at the end and like Ariel getting married. <laughs> it's more that he really is this destructive figure and not just in the ways that like the seas and the waters can be destructive, but he is like this destructive God. So I think of him as being kind of destruction personified. And also that he represents toxic masculinity as you will see the same with Zeus. And I kind of think of, even though Zeus is like the king of the gods, I think of he and Poseidon kind of being head to head with each other. Uh, a lot of his mythology just represents the ugliest part of like the masculinity construct, just kind of the entitlement, the obsession with power, the taking what you want, the aggression, all of those things that again are not, all men necessarily, but not to be like, not all men, but are not present in all men just like as an absolute, but are part of like this toxic masculinity that we all talk about. So that's my rant about Poseidon. So Poseidon enters the temple and in front of the statue of Athena, he rapes Medusa. Y'all, when I found this out, I just, I was so horrified and I was so heartbroken for her that the story we always know about her is that, that she is this hideous monster and that not knowing that she's a victim and a survivor. And that is so important to her story. You know, it's just, oh, I just remember being in Paris and being like, what? <laughs> like hitting my computer. I was so upset. So he does this not only to a priestess of Athena, not only in Athena's temple in this most sacred site, but also he does it in front of her very statue. So it's like the levels of sacrilege that this is and the levels of desecration. Like it is the ultimate act, act of desecration because it doesn't just violate Medusa. It doesn't just violate the place of worship. It doesn't just violate her religious role as a priestess who is like bound to her chastity, but it violates Athena. So it's, it's like when rapes and sexual assaults happen, it is so about how it affects the person it happens to and what they go through. But it also does have these ripples and these effects that stem out from it. You know, it's not just that this one person goes through this one solitary event, but it affects so much of their life going forward. And even their people around them and, and instances with like their caregivers and their friends and family and their romantic relationships. <sighs> I don't want to dwell on this part too much because I know it's really heavy. I know a lot of people listening to this have gone through their own, you know, experiences with sexual assault. And I am so, so sorry for that. But yeah, it's like this choice that Poseidon made purely out of like lust and power and control, then create all of these ripples through everything else that is in Medusa's story. And it's, uh, uh, it's maddening. It's so maddening. Okay, so this horrible thing happens. And Medusa is now a rape victim slash survivor, which means through no fault of her own, that she can now not marry in Greek society and she can no longer serve Athena because she is not a virgin. Which like, okay, we're going to talk about Athena because I'm, I'm like starting to boil over a little bit. So this is why me and Athena had beef. I told y'all when I watched this the first time, it was in 2010 when I was in Paris and that was the, actually the first time my mom came to Europe was when I was living in Paris and then she and I went to Greece together also that summer for the first time together. When I tell you, and I mentioned this before, I had the worst attitude about Athena and 
like we were in Athens. I love Athens. It is one of my favorite cities in the world, truly. But I just had this like bubbling, simmering rage towards towards her the entire time I was there because I was like, you betrayed a woman. You betrayed your sister. You betrayed a victim. And so I am through a lot of goddess work and reading about goddesses and learning more of their stories. I have come to a more peaceful place with my feelings about Athena, but I will say in telling y'all this story now, it kind of does, it does come up a little bit again. So Athena is furious, rightly so, because this act takes place in her temple. It takes place in front of her statue. As we just talked about, it is very violating. It is very disrespectful. It is sacrilege. But she directs all of her fury at Medusa and none of it towards Poseidon because <laughs> male gods were expected to do things like this. Coming in, they were expected. So they were not expected to control themselves. They were allowed to do whatever they want. They were allowed to take any woman they wanted at any time. It was just what they did. I mean, sounds like rape culture, but okay. So Athena definitely participates in victim blaming 100%. That is why I gave you also the trigger warning for this. She not only blames Medusa for being a victim of rape, but she punishes her for being a victim. Like, can you just, whew, okay. Let me interject here in a lot of my reading about Ovid. There are many instances where in his writing, he takes kind of a less favorable approach to talking about Athena. And so perhaps this is more him coloring Athena in a negative light versus what her actions were. But I can't say that for sure. I'm just saying that to give like a little tiny sliver of maybe this was written biased, more biased than we think it was. But still, like... We ended up with a Medusa Gorgon figure, so something happened, right? So at this part of my notes, I refer to Athena as Miss I Just Get Along With Guys Better. Girls are so mean and catty, Athena. Because in the special that I watched initially about this, and kind of just in reading in different stories about Athena, she is presented as this more masculine figure, which nothing is wrong with that. But it reminds me of those girls that you like go to school with and those women as you get older that will always say things like, I don't know, I just don't get along with girls. Girls just don't really like me. Girls are so mean and catty to each other. <clears throat> I always just really like guys. All of my friends are guys. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like not to say there's anything wrong with having male friends. I love my male friends. They're wonderful and amazing. But if you just as a woman cannot get along with other women and only see the bad in other women, that is because you have like self-hate towards womanhood because of like internalized, um, <clears throat> my voice is going out because I'm, I'm ranting too much because of internalized misogyny. You know what I mean? The distinction, like I have come across people for sure that are all about, I, I only like guys, all women are catty and mean. No, all women are not catty and mean. Like, of course we've all had experiences with catty and mean women. And I'm sure we've all been catty and mean women at certain times in our lives. But to generalize all women in that way as an excuse to only have men in your life and be surrounded by men, it's very like kind of pick me culture. And so that is, <laughs> to be honest, that's how I refer to Athena in this passage, because that's the energy I got. Instead of protecting, again, your sister, your fellow woman, you are like, well, I mean, boys will be boys. That's just what they're going to do. I mean, right, bros? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
it's kind of that trope of the cool girl. Like she wants to be accepted by guys. She wants to show that she can like drink beer and eat pizza and like tell graphic jokes. And you know what? It, like, I hope I'm making sense and I'm not making it sound like having more of a tomboyish side or having more of a masculine side or embracing male relationships is a bad thing because it's not at all. I definitely have a very strong masculine side to me, but there are some people that take it to the extreme of like basically participating in misogyny by how mean and nasty they are about other women. Does that make sense? I hope so. If you have a male best friend or male best friends out there or you love pizza and beer and watching football, this is not an indictment on you. I think that's all great stuff. It's one very particular personality that I'm referring to. Oh, and let us not pretend that men cannot be quote unquote mean and catty as well and that they don't love gossip and tea because they do too. So that's what I'm saying. If you kind of have this trope in your head about women, it's more based on this misogynistic stereotype versus the diverse and amazing and lovely personalities and people that you will meet that identify as women. So that is kind of how I framed Athena because she sided with the dude. She sided with her bro and she expected nothing from him and then victim blamed this woman that went through this horrific, horrific event. So all that to say, Athena is the one who bestows this curse on Medusa. That's right. So if you don't go with Homer's version where the Gorgons are born of these two sea gods, these two kind of sea monsters, then the story is that Athena is the one who turned the most beautiful, revered for her beauty woman in ancient Greece into this horrible, ugly, physically repulsive monster. Whew. So this is a little note I just made about the whole story. She, Medusa, is targeted by Poseidon because of her beauty and then has her beauty stripped away by Athena. There's so much that could be said here about how threatening female beauty is and how women, even now, are valued by standards of westernized beauty and people will try to downgrade or strip away that beauty as a punishment in a way if they feel the woman deserves it. Which I'm going to talk about modern relationships for a second. What comes to mind is how when you reject a guy, many of them will reply with, well, you're not that pretty anyway, or straight up, well, you're ugly. Okay, which used to always drive me crazy because I was like, well, I wasn't ugly five minutes ago when you tried to hit on me, was I? But that's the thing. It's like I will attack your looks and try to devalue your looks because that is what's most important about a woman, which obviously it's not. That is based on society and it's, again, like a stereotyping of how women value ourselves even. Whew, I'm getting so heated in this episode. <laughs> okay, so... um. Or, this is my other example, or some men will break down a woman's confidence in her beauty so she will tolerate any treatment for him. So that act of like negging where I'm not even 100% sure how it's defined, but it's basically like you give passive aggressive compliments or kind of like really teasing compliments towards women where you break down their self-esteem systemically and... So they like lose a lot of their confidence or they start to really put a lot of weight in their insecurities and guys do that to like women. I don't know why guys do it because I don't understand the psychology of a lot of men, but I, I think from what I understand about it is that they do it. So either you can get a girl that's out of your league because you make her kind of like come down a little bit or once you have her, they, they neg you. So you don't have the confidence in yourself to like, leave if you want to or to like 
be like, you can't treat me like that. <laughs> you know, it kind of just like plays on insecurities. And then you start to really believe in those insecurities. And you really start to like live in that insecure space. So that was something else that came to mind about how people in society are always just trying to break down a woman's beauty as a way to punish her, which is what happened to Medusa. She was the most beautiful woman. And the thing that Athena took away from her was her beauty. Oh, that's a whole thing. Okay. So, um, there's also something to be said about how so much of a woman's beauty and her vanity is seen in our hair. And that's what Athena targeted as well. And especially because it's noted that Medusa was known for her long, flowing, beautiful locks. And that was turned into writhing, poisonous, deadly snakes. So she is no longer beautiful. That's strike one that Athena bestows upon her. She is no longer in a revered position in society. And as I said before, she couldn't marry in Greek society now. Because again, she is a victim survivor of sexual assault. Um, and she will now forever be isolated, not just because Athena banishes her away, but also she's isolated because she can't look upon anyone. I know the story that we give with Medusa is that if she looks at any man, you know, he turns to stone, but she can't look at anyone, nothing. So that is a life that you are punished and confined to being by yourself forever in isolation. I think it's wonderful to be alone. I am someone that loves being alone, but I would never want to be isolated. That is a punishment to me, you know? So just the levels to all this, the levels to the way that Athena punished her, the levels to the way that Poseidon victimized and violated her, and also the worship of a divine female in Athena, just the levels of this whole story. It's really kind of takes your breath away when you you learn all about it. That's why I really wanted to tell her story. So yeah, that's, that is how we went from beautiful woman who was just trying to live her chaste life and be a priestess and serve this goddess that she revered to horrible, deadly monster known throughout the ancient world to kill men. And also because of the power, like she went from having this power of her beauty to this power of her ugliness in a way. And because her power was to be able to turn anything she looks upon and gazes upon to stone, or actually it's whatever gazes upon her to become the stone, to turn to stone, it put a bounty on her head. So even after all this, and she's been banished and isolated from the rest of the world, she will never even have peace because all of these warriors show up over time to try to capture her head so they can possess that power herself. So like Poseidon wanted to possess her in like a physical way. And even after this horrible transformation happens to her, from, again, the woman that's supposed to be her sister and protector, the woman that she works as and reveres and given her life to, she still can't have peace because now everyone wants what she possesses on this other end. Medusa went through so much, y'all. I think I am still going to post the Clash of the Gods video because I want you to see this part where they talk about how they believe the Gorgon, the, the physicality of the Gorgon, is influenced by the sight of um, human corpses in ancient Greece. And it talks about how like the skin will tighten, which looks like it makes it look like the eyes start to bulge out and how the lips will tighten and pull back. And so it makes the teeth look like they're burying themselves. I don't know. It's just this really interesting part. I, I like, of course, mythology and learning all these stories. And I do, I do believe a lot of them in a way, but it is very interesting to see how hearing all of these myth and le myths and legends across these ancient cultures, how we can really relate them to what may have been going on in the world around those people that creates these stories. And these stories are like explanations for all of the things that they are saying. So I think I am still going to post the video, even though the sound just dropped out, because I thought that part was really interesting. 
Okay, so instead of leaving my girl Medusa in peace as if she hasn't been through enough, here comes Perseus. So literally, can you imagine? You have been violated in the worst way. You have been turned into a literal monster. I mean, not only do you have snakes atop your head and your skin's all dry and drawn and cracked now, but I can't imagine those snakes just be still. They're probably slipping and sliding all over your head all night long. So does my girl even get to sleep? Like <laughs> on top of everything else, you've been banished. You've been turned into this horrible, hideous thing. And you don't even get rest. You get no rest and no peace, which to me is like my personal nightmare. You're isolated from the world because you can't look at anyone. And people want to come and cut off your literal head. That's what you have to deal with all the time. No rest, no peace. People trying to come and murder you. Like what? Okay. So Perseus is a demigod who was born of Zeus and Danae, Danae, let's say Danae for this. So Zeus is another male god up to no good. I wish you could see my face right now, as usual. If you know Zeus's track record, this is the one where, so Danae was put up into a tower. She was locked up there by her father because there was a prophecy that said, Oh, and they were the king and like daughter or princess of Argon, Argos. I think it's Argon. So the prophecy that the king received was that one day Danae will have a child. And Danae. Oh, I wish I remember how to pronounce it. She will have a child and um, the child will like overtake him and be his downfall and possibly kill him. I can't remember the exact thing. So he locks her in a tower. Very like Rapunzel of it all. And so again, Zeus track record. He has all these various ways. He likes to come down, have his sexual affairs and impregnate women and just create demigods all over the place. This is the one where he comes in through her, like, uh, like a skylight at the top of the tower. He comes down in like this shower of glimmering gold and they have a tryst or maybe it was something more than that. I don't know. I'm not going to put any labels on it. But from that, we have the birth of Perseus. So he is half human, half God. He is a demigod. So Danae's father puts them in a boat and sets them adrift because he does not want to be taken down by his grandson as per this prophecy. So, you know, just like off to the elements, whatever. And they survive this whole series of like being in the water and sea monsters and storms, all of these things, because Zeus is always watching over them because it is his offspring. I mean, he was a deadbeat dad, but he showed up sometime, sort of, I don't know. So they end up on this island called Seraphus. And there is uh, the king of the island, which is Polydectes. And Polydectes has the hot for hots for Danae. He wants to marry her. Danae's like, haven't I been through enough? I do not want to marry you, dude. Like, let me just be with my son. So there's this ruse that comes up where he wants everyone on the island or all the men on the island to like gift him with this, these kind of extravagant gifts. And Perseus is the son of the single mother who was set adrift at sea. So they really don't have anything. So Perseus isn't able to gift him what Polydactus, I just want to call him pterodactyl, uh, requires of him, which I think, well, let me check my notes, is a horse. It's a horse that he wants. Yeah, he wants, he wants all of the men of the island to like gift him with his horses because yeah, you want to marry someone, so we'll just give you things. That sounds right. But wait, is that the same thing as a wedding registry? <laughs> I think it kind of is. Anyway, so Perseus is like, okay, well, I'm poor, and uh, I don't have a horse, but I will bring you the head of a gorgon. Tall order. Again, the gorgons are these fearsome creatures. No one ever goes and journeys to their island and makes it all alive. There is a garden of stone pillared bodies, as far as the eye can see, in front of the 
the house where the Gorgons live. I don't know if it's a house or a villa. It's not a villa. I don't know. <laughs> Just their dwelling. But it is infamous for having this temple um, or this garden in front that is just full of these stone figures that have been petrified. So Perseus, again, who is a demigod, has the help from like everybody you can come across. One of the figures that is very intent on helping him slay Medusa and take her head is Athena. Girl, here we go again. Athena, you're just, you're really just not with the feminism. You're not supporting other women. What is up with that? So with the help of Athena and also Hermes, Hermes gifts, um, or lends, I guess would be a better word, Perseus his flighted sandals. So he's able to travel long distances very quickly and access places he wouldn't be able to access ordinarily. They uh, help them locate our gray sisters who are our sisters that share one eyeball and one tooth. It's not the best setup, but you know, we're going to go with it. Who are very much witch and crone figures in Greek mythology, as we know. And if you have heard the story before, or you kind of know bits and pieces, Perseus is the one that goes and steals their eye because men are the worst. So while he has their eye, all of this confusion arises and he's basically like, tell me where I can find all these things I need to slay the Gorgons and where I can find the Gorgons. So they give up the information because he has their eye. They share one eye between them. Like, what are they supposed to do? Just like, let people live in peace. That's the point of this episode. Let women live in peace. <sighs> okay. So once he has uh, given their, well, he doesn't even like give them their eye back. He just like tosses it in the sand. And I think in the original version I read, like many, many, or not the original version, but when I read this originally many, many, many years ago, they just are like scrambling in the sand trying to find where their eye is. And if you've seen Clash of the Titans, the 1980 version, 1981 with Harry freaking Hamlin, then you see like the eye gets tossed into the sand and they're just like scrambling for it and the eyes blinking like looking <laughs> so dramatic okay so from there he has so he goes to the gray sisters they're like this is where the nymphi are he goes to the nymphi and this is where he gets the tools that are necessary for him to uh slay the gorgons even though they don't need slaying so he gets hades helmet of invisibility he gets um a kibesis kibesis which is a sack that can contain the head of the Gorgon without it like inflicting anything on him personally. And obviously the eyes are in the sack. So it's not able to look upon anything and turn to stone, including um, Perseus. Because imagine if he just had to like carry it under his arm, like textbooks, not going to work out. Um, he gets the sandals of Hermes. And there's also a sickle like sword that he gets, which we'll talk about it in the when we get to the Libyan part of the myth. But there is a connection between like the sickle, the sickle shape of the sword and also like the sickle shape of the moon. Keep that in mind. And he, Athena gives him with a copper, no, no, no. Basically a mirrored shield, talking again about the Aegis and the shield that she carries with the Gorgon head on it. She gives him a mirrored shield so that he is able to look at the Gorgons through the shield and never face to face. So when he goes in originally, I think he actually has his eyes closed and he then figures out, okay, I can place myself. I can hide behind some of these. I'm kind of going off the Clash of the Titans movie too, like the old one <laughs> with like the mechanical owl. But I feel like he goes in with his eyes closed. And because there are all of these like men that are stuck in time that are petrified into stone, he's able to hide behind them kind of like columns. So he's able to maneuver the shield around that Athena gave him because she is a hater and she is determined to take down the Medusa no matter what. <sighs> Come on, sisterhood. And he's able to view where the Gorgons are. In fact, in this very <laughs> clash of the Titans, 
claymation version of the story version of the story I remember you see Medusa kind of like darting in between these statues too and in this version she has gone totally from beautiful maiden to maiden we're talking about maiden mother crone in a second too beautiful maiden to a full snake creature so she is not a woman or human like at all anymore and she has kind of this rattling rattle snake tail that you see kind of darting between columns should we have a watch party for the 1980 81 version of clash of the titans let me know i kind of want to watch it because the animation's so bad it's so good okay so basically he goes to where the gorgons are where they live and because he has the invisibility and the shield and the sickle and everything, he successfully decapitates our beloved Medusa and puts her head into the Kibisis sack that he has. And this is the part in the Perseus um, myth where we hear about the other two sisters. And again, remember I said that um, Uralee screams out with this like bellowing, horrible screech in reaction to her sister being murdered. That is where we see her character come into play and Stethno. Oh my gosh, I already forgot her name. Stethno, I think. Um, that's where we see her, where they're both trying to like be like, yo, what's up? You came into our house, you disrespect us, you kill our sister, you're not getting out of here, dude. Like, what's up? But because he has Hades. Oh my gosh, Hades what? Hades helmet! <laughs> I keep wanting to say Hades cloak because I'm thinking about the cloak of invisibility in Harry Potter, which I'm not even like a Harry Potter stan. I don't know why it's <laughs> trying to mess me up with telling the story. So he escapes and off he goes with his winged shoes from Hermes and or Hermes, as I like to say, because I like fashion, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Hermes and he flies off. And I know um, two versions of it is that when the Gorgon's head, like there's blood or ooze dripping down from her head that has been severed in this sack and in some places where the blood or I don't even know if it's technically blood oh wait I skipped a part when he cuts off Medusa's head she has two offspring that spring forth to life which are her uh, offspring with Poseidon though not by her choice and one is the winged uh, horse Pegasus of Lisa Frank fame. And one is Cryosaur, who is a giant that wields a golden sword. I'm pretty sure. So didn't want to skip out Pegasus. I know a lot of us grew up with a lot of Pegasus love. So Medusa is the mother of Pegasus. Anyway, so he's flying off with the head and this blood is dripping down. And so the mythology is that where her blood falls down in some places, it creates this um, breed Breed? Is breed the right word? I think, no. Maybe of really, really poisonous snakes that are still alive in Egypt now. And um, so that was kind of like explaining the origin story of where these really poisonous, dangerous snakes was. They are uh, created from the blood of Medusa hitting the sand. But also it is told that where the places where her blood hit the earth below them, because remember he's flying with these winged sandals, there were these like beautiful oasises that popped up. Which... I like to go with the beautiful Oasis story more of her being this uh, goddess that provided for the world and protected in the guardian, you know, the things we're going to keep coming back to. So that is pretty much where Medusa's, Medusa's story ends. Obviously, the story of Perseus goes on and on, and he uses her head to turn his enemies to stone. He saves um, Princess Andromeda from, or Princess Andromeda from some big like Kraken sea monster 
like quest, quest, quest. And then eventually he makes it back to Polydectes or Pterodactyl as I like to call him. And he holds up the head and he turns everyone to stone and he is thus able to save his mother from this evil king who wants to wed and bed her. So I know you're like, okay, Mickey, so he used the head to like save his mom. What then? <laughs> well, then he gives the Gorgon's sever head, Medusa, our victim, our survivor, our love, our witch, our goddess, he uh, gives the head to Athena. And Athena then places the Gorgon Medusa's head onto her shield, onto her aegis, so that she is always victorious and protected in war and battle. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just let you sit with that for a second. Let's just take it all in. Uh-huh. Actually, in my notes, I wrote, Athena carried a shield with Medusa's face on it, which is rich. <laughs> so, that is wrapping up the classical, and we talk about class, classical, we're talking about like this one period, the classical period in ancient Greece, story and mythology of Medusa, according to Ovid's Metamorphosis, and then of the Perseus story. And also, I keep wanting to call Perseus Pegasus because <laughs> Pegasus is in the story as well. But Pegasus winged horse, Perseus demigod who should have minded his business. Okay, so um, there is something I wanted to point out. I, I guess this is a good time to do it. And then we'll go into the Libyan story of Medusa, which gives us the triple goddess aspect. It does involve Athena and it's more of the witchy side of this whole story. But I do want to note that you know, one of the ways that Medusa was spoken about was that she was able to bewitch. She was bewitching these men and turning them into stone. And so the word was not, uh, not being used to describe her. So I think even if we stop here, we can say that she definitely had her own witch story and witch tendencies going on. So this is what I want to mention here. The Gorgonian, which is, um, uh, amulet that was worn to ward off harmful intentions, evil influences, and bad luck misfortunes in ancient Greece. Kind of like, well, actually all throughout the ancient world. Kind of like, you know, I talked about how I wear an evil eye and how we think about that. Same thing. It was this thing that was used on pinulet, pinulets, on pendants, amulets, and shields, like we talked about with Athena. I mean, Alexander the Great had a Medusa on his breastplate. All of these great warriors, they would have her her visage, her Gorgonian face on their, their shields and their breastplates and everything they wore into battle. And people wore it just, you know, in their everyday lives. And there were like Medusa faces they would put onto stone that would sit on the front of ovens to scare children, to protect children because it, the face would scare them and they wouldn't go and open the oven and try to put their hands in and hurt themselves. And she was kind of, there's a lot of similarities between Medusa and Lilith, which I think we'll always see similarities, you know, weaving these stories about all of these powerful witches and goddesses and women that um, she was used to kind of scare children. Like if you don't go to bed or if you don't eat all your peas, the Medusa is going to come get you. With Lilith, if you don't go to sleep, you know, Lilith will come and take you away. So you better listen to your parents kind of thing. And so again, we go back to the name Medusa, meaning protector, meaning guardian, you know, meaning queen, this goddess. And she... It's kind of, I think just her as a being, her as a witch, she was this protective figure, just like her energy and her as an entity. But people were always also thinking I'm able to protect myself because the Gorgon is so fearsome and her, her look turns anyone to stone. So 
it's more about the Gorgon Medusa than just Medusa, but I think she was this like protective guardian figure in both forms, if that makes sense. So yeah, the Gorgonian, you're just like your evil eye out there. It was something that went all around and was something that was worn and in the homes of many, 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 many people from common people to people in like higher ranks of society, to royalty, to warriors, to soldiers, to some of the greatest leaders of the ancient world. Okay. Are y'all good? Do y'all need a break? <laughs> Take a break now if you need to come back to the podcast because we're going to go into the next part of this, which is talking about Medusa and her North African and Libyan origins. And uh, this blew my mind reading about all this stuff. Like I said, I always considered her to be a witch of color. I, uh, I always consider her to be a witch. I consider her to be a goddess figure and not just this creature. I just, even, even once I knew about her rape and the story about her trans transformation as a punishment, I just always knew there was more to her story. So here we go. This is from goddessinspired.wordpress.com. And um, the title is Medusa, the Libyan Dark Moon Serpent Goddess. So I'm going to read you this and just kind of talk through it because there's so much information here. I, I couldn't even start to tell this from like my memory, especially because it's stuff that I'm just starting to learn about. So most people, when they hear the name Medusa, instantly visualize a scary snake monster with a face so terrifying that just one glance will turn a man to stone. I wish. What only few people realize is that, yet again, what we're seeing here is the twisting of the truth by the Hellenic or classical Greeks. Medusa's origins lie in North Africa, where she represented one of one third of the triple moon goddess. Hello, we know all about that. In pre-dynastic Egypt, she was known as Neith, and in Libya, Medusa's homeland, the triple moon goddess, was called Anatha. Anatha, the Neith before her, was said to have risen from the primeval floodwaters. Let me try that again. Primeval floodwaters. More specifically in Libya, the birthplace of the triple moon goddess was Lake Tritonis, the lake of the triple queens. Ancient inscriptions about the North African moon goddess describe her as, I have come for myself. I am all that has been and that will be. And no mortal has yet been able to lift the veil that covers me. She was synonymous with Mother Death, for to see her face meant to have died. Turn to stone. Hello. The Libyan triple goddess Anatha has three aspects. Athena, mm -hmm, the maiden, Metis, the mother, and Medusa, the crone. So as you know, I am crone hive. I love my crone queens out there. So I think that's another reason I am so like intoxicated with Medusa is because she represents that crone aspect. Anatha's maiden aspect, Athena, was the goddess of the waxing crescent moon. Like her Amazon priestesses, she wore a goatskin chastity tunic, which was the original Aegis, like I said, the it could be a clothing or it could be a shield, that would later be adapted by the Olympian Greeks for their version of Athena. The original African Athena represented independence, youthful exuberance, and growth, her particular attributes being strength, courage, and valor. Metis was the mother aspect of the triple moon goddess. She, too, would later be adopted into the classical Greek pantheon, not Parthenon, pantheon, as the mother of Athena, who was swallowed whole by Zeus while she was pregnant with her daughter. Like all full moon goddesses, Metis was originally associated with fertility and motherhood. Medusa, the crone or dark moon aspect of Anatha, was the most powerful of the three. She was the wise one, the keeper of the dark moon mysteries. 
the goddess of death and rebirth. Oh my gosh. I'm getting like chills up my body while I'm talking about her. This is so overwhelming. Okay. Like her Amazon priestesses, Medusa wore a leather pouch around her waist that contained live snakes representing wisdom and renewal. She carried with her the original Gorgon mask or Gorgonian. That's the amulet I was just telling y'all about whose purpose was to frighten off the uninitiated and thus help protect the secrecy surrounding the magic of the dark moon. The mask was painted red to symbolize the power of the menstrual blood. It had gruesome glaring eyes, bared fang teeth, and like the Hindu goddess Kali, a protruding tongue. So all that imagery I'm telling you, we have seen all throughout the ancient world, the teeth, the tongue, the tusk, the eyes. It's, it's symbolism that comes up over and over and over and over. You know, we love Kali around here. Medusa's face was once synonymous with divine female wisdom. In ancient Libya, she was linked to divination, healing, magic, and the sexual serpent mysteries associated with death and renewal. To invoke her wisdom, her priestesses would wear Medusa's mask and celebrate the sexual rites with the representatives of the sea gods, which is interesting because Medusa and Poseidon. Anatha and her three faces. I wonder if it's Anatha or Anatha. I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to keep saying Anatha because I'm just phonetically saying it, but it might be like Anatha or something more beautiful like that. Anatha and her three faces aspects and her three faces aspects was the moon goddess of the matrilineal goddess worshiping Libyans to this patch to the patriarchal Greek invaders. She became the representative of her Amazon daughters. As always much historical truth has been hidden in the classical Greek myths surrounding Athena, Metis and Medusa. While Metis was swallowed whole by Zeus, the father of the Hellenists, I've never seen that word written like that before. I know Hellenic, but Hellenes, H-E-L-L-E-N-E-S, if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Thus passing on her daughter and her wisdom, Athena and Medusa were irreversibly split and made into enemies. Athena would become another token female of the Greek pantheon and would eventually be forced to betray her own crone self and become a traitor to her sisters. Medusa, on the other hand, would be turned into a nasty, fearsome monster that would eventually be slayed and have her power stolen off of her to be used by her murderers. Did that just kind of like take the wind out of you? That took a lot out of me. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the same long podcast. I'm going to tell you the same story, but I really love how this version relates it back to Africa, relates it back to like the real origin of Athena and Medusa and Metis and this triple goddess. So bear with it. It's really interesting. This is their sad story. According to classical Greek myth, Medusa was the only mortal sister of the three beautiful golden Gorgon sea goddesses, Zeno, Urale, and Medusa. Medusa was said to have many suitors who she all rejected until Poseidon, the Hellenic god of the sea, seduced her in one of Athena's sanctuaries. Seduce, assault, there are two schools of thought on what happened. In earlier versions of the myth, Medusa willingly took the sea god as her lover in celebration of the sexual mysteries between the goddess and her consort. But after about 2000 BCE, the legend started to speak of marriage, if not rape. Poseidon, who used to be a horse god, had taken on the shape of a stallion while Medusa was said to have been in her shape of a mare. Um, This is interesting because when you go back to the Perseus uh, myth that I was just talking about, what... uh, Polydectus, pterodactyl, <laughs> so keep thinking his name is, asked for was horses from everyone. So this horse um, imagery and this horse idol being associated with Medusa comes up there. So that's kind of the relation to that. This reference to horses takes us back to Medusa's African lunar origins as her Amazon tribe considered the horse with its crescent-shaped hooves, sacred hooves, hooves? 
hooves. I'm not sure. Sacred to the moon goddess. According to Robert Graves, the fact that in this myth, Poseidon had taken on the form of a stallion likely indicates a forced marriage between his male followers and Medusa's priestesses in order to take their lands and powers. Here comes the patriarchy. In the classical myth, Athena is enraged once she discovers what Medusa has done. This part is bad enough when Medusa willingly made love to Poseidon, but quite becomes quite atrocious when in later myth, Poseidon takes her against her will. Absolutely. In scorn, Athena turned Medusa and her sisters into ugly winged monsters with glaring eyes, huge teeth, protruding tongues, brazen claws, and serpent locks. Medusa, Medusa, sorry, Medusa. Medusa was said to be the most terrifying of them, whose face was said to be so fearsome that just one glance would literally petrify a man and turn him to stone. This is a very sad twist in the story, as obviously Athena and Medusa are one and the same. Athena's wrath is therefore actually turned against herself, the part of her that is dark, wise, linked to death and renewal, and most importantly, that is carnal and sexual. Because you have to remember, Athena is the virgin. She's not a virgin. She is the virgin. She is the face of chastity and of this concept of purity. The classical Greek Athena is a chaste virgin in quite the modern sense of the word. She is daddy Zeus's little girl only at the price of turning against her own dark and sexual nature. In Jungian terms, Medusa is Athena's shadow who she despises and punishes. Um, they're talking about Carl. I think it's pronounced young, actually, like J-U-N-G. I'm not sure, but he is one of those like fathers of psychoanalytical psychiatry and like a uh, not a predecessor, a student of Freud, I'm pretty sure. Let me look that up, actually. Okay, interjection. Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist and psycho psychoanalyst who founded analytical psychology. Jung's first was influential in the field of psychiatry, anthropology, archaeology, literature, philosophy, and religious studies. Jung worked at a as a research scientist, as the famous, I'm just giving myself harder and harder words, um, Burkholzi Hospital under Eugen Buller. During this time, he came to the attention of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoana psychoanalysis. The two men conducted a lengthy correspondence and collaborated for a while on a joint vision of human psychology. So just in case you wanted a uh, side note about that. Let me pick up with that sentence again. So in Jungian terms, Medusa is Athena's shadow who she despises and punishes. The fact that Medusa was seduced in Athena's own sanctuary speaks volumes. The origin of this particular location dates back to the time when Athena was still the newborn maiden to Medusa's crone of death and regeneration. When she was still the next step of the ever turning wheel of life after the time of rest and renewal inside Medusa's dark womb. The next part of the story is the actual murder of Medusa by Perseus, a young solar hero. He is assisted in this task by Athena and Hermes, the farrier of souls. Robert Graves suggests that this part of the story is likely based on actual historical events. About 1290 BCE, King Perseus, the founder of the New Hellenic Dynasty in Mycenae, sent out his pa patriarchal solar warriors to invade North Africa, conquer the women-led tribes who lived there, and overthrow their moon goddess in favor of their own male divinities. This mythical beheading of Medusa, the wise crone aspect of the Amazonian triple moon goddess, represents the actual invasion of the goddess's chief shrines, the desecration of her priestesses' gorgon mass with their contained wisdom and the kidnapping, kidnapping of her sacred force. In classical Greek mythology, Perseus was the son of Zeus and Danae, the princess of Argon. Argon. There you go. Like Argon oil, I think. Following an oracular prediction. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oracular, like, uh, spoken 
prediction that his death would be at the hands of his own grandson, the king of Argon, banished his daughter and his baby and her baby son from his kingdom. Both were rescued by a fisherman named Dictus, who took them home and raised Perseus like his own son. Years later, when Perseus, I've already told you this, but you know, let's just go through it. Years later, when Perseus had reached adulthood, the new cruel and ruthless leader of the land, Polydectes, wanted Danae, Perseus' mother, as his lover and to devise a plan to rid himself of her son. He demanded a horse of each citizen, but as Perseus was a poor fisherman by trade, he couldn't afford to buy one. He ended up promising the king to bring him Medusa's head, containing her powers of magic and wisdom. As Medusa was often described as a mare, what Perseus was really promising was to bring him the head of the most powerful and terrifying horse known to man, the female menstrual and sexual mysteries of the moon goddess, presumably in order to make her powers those of a newly rising patriarch. Mm-hmm. They take everything. Okay. To help Perseus in his quest, Athena gave him her brightly polished shield to protect him from Medusa's petrifying gaze. I love that they keep using the word petrify because petrify is a literal, like, physical act that happens and not just, like, this turn to stone, turn to stone thing that we always hear. From Medusa, he received the only weapon that would be able to slay... I'm sorry. From Hermes, he received the only weapon that would be able to slay Medusa, a curved magical sword. I wonder if the curve of the sword is an intentional reference to the moon's sickle, sickle shape. I mean, it looks like a crescent moon. Every depiction I've seen of it, whether it be a movie or a drawing or a portrait or painting portrait of the Perseus myth, it the first thing you think is like, oh, that's like a crescent moon. It's a sickle. You know, that's what comes to mind. In a vision, Athena and Hermes guided Perseus to the gray. Okay, da -da -da -da. we talked about that already. So I don't have to tell you the entire full story again. So we go to the part where he gives Medusa's severed head to Athena. She affixes it to her shield and some versions her breastplate. And um, he also gave Athena two vials of Medusa's healing blood, who uh, she passed them on to Aesculapios, the Hellenic god of healing. So like I said, her blood was bringing up all kinds of life below it, and her blood was magic. Menstrual blood is magic. Her The blood that was literally like running through and forcing through her body was magic. Okay. Medusa, the goddess of wisdom, of death and renewal, the dark goddess of healing and divination who represents the god of worshipping Libyan Amazon priestesses is destroyed by the patriarchal invading Greeks. At first, Medusa's truth is twisted and she is turned from a gentle, loving, dark mother into the monster by her own maiden self. Later, the Grey Sisters are forced to betray her and her priestesses, which ultimately causes her death and thus the destruction of the North African matrifocal Amazon way of life. And if there's, if that's not enough, her murderers take her severed head, her Gorgon mask of magic and the mysteries of the dark moon with them to use on their own. So, you know, even when we're talking about the sexual assault or using the word rape, it's so much more than like the rape of the temple that took place in the temple. It's like, she was raped of everything. She was stripped of everything. This group of powerful women, this like uh, matrilineal society was just stripped and violated in all these ways. <sighs> it happens, right? Okay. Athena, on the other hand, was punished in quite a covert way. I thought this part was really interesting. At first sight, Athena seems to have it all. She's Zeus's favorite girl. She is virginal and chaste and is the Hellenic goddess of apparently justified war, civilization, justice, and the arts and sciences. However, on closer inspection, things don't look quite as bright. For Athena, the once greatly beloved or beloved, which one, uh, made an aspect of the Libyan moon goddess, was ripped from her Amazon sisters and turned into a traitor against her own people. Originally free and independent, she was forced to become chaste and subservient to a male father god. She was not even granted the one thing that we all share in common, a mother. 
that's true. <laughs> Unlike everybody else, Athena sprang straight from her father's head. The Athena myth, it, I'm sure you all know it, but she sprang from her father's head, fully formed in like all of her armor with her shield and her, I always want to say staff, but that's not the right word. Was spear? Yeah, I think it's a spear. Okay. Uh, where was I? Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, she was turned from a moon maiden goddess that represented birth and growth into a warrior goddess who fought against her own goddess worshiping sisters all over the ancient world. She was made a traitor when in the classical drama Oritesia, Tia, she sided with the upstarting patriarch and cast the deciding vote that only fathers were related to their children. I have never heard that story. I need to go look that up. This momentous drama was a major contributing factor in the changeover from mother right to father right. It would play a major part in downgrading women to second-class citizens for thousands of years, something that even our 21st century society hasn't recovered from. And to rub salt into the wound in order to become the perfect patriarchal daughter, Athena was forced to give up her past, her woman her womanness, and her sexuality. She wasn't just made to kill her own dark, wise, and sexual self but has to wear the slaughtered side of herself on her breastplate for all eternity as if as a reminder of what she and all women under patriarchy have lost. <sighs> Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that says it all. And that's why I wanted to read you the whole thing. At first I was like, let me just read about the triple goddess aspect of it because that's all the stuff we talk about in witchcraft. And that's, what's really important to us, you know, as witches, when we're learning more about our craft and the different goddesses we can work with and this, um, maiden mother moon, you know, this, this, all these aspects that are really important that we work with. But the more I read the story, it, number one it sheds a different light on Athena so then my look to her isn't like how could you betray us it's that she was a victim too and that we all become victims of the patriarchy at some point and we're all just kind of trying to survive underneath that so yeah I thought that was interesting and beautiful and it brought in more of the witchy side and the goddess side and yeah I mean Medusa is a witch <laughs> at the end of the day she's a witch and at the end of the day, patriarchy is coming for us all. We got to fight it, girls. Am I right? Am I right, girls? <laughs> all right. So uh, let's go on to this last part, which is I just wanted to talk about, like I said, Medusa and like conversations about her going beyond the myth. So these are just different thoughts I wrote down, you know, in doing all this and <laughs> They kind of read like read like reading comprehension questions you'd have to answer at the end of a reading, but don't worry, you don't have to do it. So the first thing is um, the Medusa figure, a protector, as we've talked about a million times by now, becomes a seducer through the Christian lens in the Middle Ages. This is where we really see a turn in her story because, you know, good old Christianity is coming to tell you some facts about ladies. So Medusa takes on the atypical quote unquote temptress role, not unlike Ella. Lilith, trying to say Eve and Lilith at the same time. Not unlike Lilith and not unlike Eve, Medusa represents a woman's ability to, quote, seduce, unquote, men, not only sexually, but away from any ideals of virtue or being virtuous while her vanquisher, hmm, murderer, Perseus, comes to represent virtues defeating her. So she is like the snakes and the seduction and the slithering and the but even like, you know, even just in a way a snake moves, there's like kind of a seductiveness to it. And so she is so framed as just sin incarnate and Perseus comes and he kills the sin and he turns the sin against himself. It's this whole thing. <laughs> like all this, it's all a whole thing. So this is what I wrote after that. Was it that her stare could turn into stone or that to gaze at her beauty was literally petrifying? 
Men aren't to fear Medusa because she was a fearsome monster who looks will lead to sudden death. Men are to fear her because she is a powerful, strong, beautiful woman. That that is the real threat to men. So when we're talking about it, like were they just petrified, not literally turning to stone, but were they petrified as in they were scared? They were literally just scared of her. And this is how the interpretations of this story have come and like grown and grown over time. And then um the last thing I wrote is <laughs> I have to read over it real quick. The transformation has also been aesthetic from ugly and terrifying monsters. Okay, yeah. So I'm talking about how like we viewed the Gorgon archetype at first with again the gnashing teeth, the lolling tongue, the huge eyes rolling around in their heads, the snakes in their hair. She, the Medusa and the Gorgons have gone from that horrifying monstrous look to being this really stylized version of being these beautiful women instead of having just like insane matted snake hairs going in every single direction they have like this kind of style to them this like quaff almost and this typically like classical greek clothing that just like clings to their bodies you know what i mean so there really has been this transformation overall when we're talking about the gorgons and medusa from being these horrible monsters to being these beautiful women but in both of these forms they're still terrifying because what's scarier than a powerful woman, you know? So those are all of my notes on Medusa. Those are all the things I wanted to share about her story. And that is why I believe that she is a witch. She is a goddess and she is a witch of color. <laughs> In summation, that is how I'm going to end my essay this week. Um, I know I said in the last episode, the second Ask Me Anything, that I was going to try to like incorporate spell work into these stories that I'm telling. Um, thing is all of the like spells and rituals I came across that I was trying to relate to Medusa are ones that involve snake work. And I know one, a lot of us don't have access to snakes. A lot of us aren't used to working with live animals and I would never recommend going out and buying a snake just to use it in a spell or ritual. I care about animals very much. Obviously they're the most important thing to me. And, um, so yeah, I wouldn't, and I also, you know, snakes can be, I don't want to say they can be dangerous because I, well, they can, all animals can be dangerous. I'm not saying that snakes are inherently dangerous or bad at all because I really am starting to get like a real affinity for them. But, um, you know, if you aren't used to handling them, then they definitely can be dangerous. And I don't want you agitating, aggravating, uh, abusing a snake because you aren't used to handling one. So, uh, I think we're going to skip that part for right now, but I did find a crystal that works with snakes. I've never seen this one in person. I just came across it because I was trying to find a stone that would relate to snakes since that's what our girl Medusa is rocking. And I came across the snakeskin agate. It's this really beautiful stone and um, it comes in different color variations. But the ones that I found, it was like a earthy kind of brownish orange. And then it had like a white overlay on it that literally looked like snake skin especially after they shed their skin and it's kind of that drier you know what I mean with like the holes in it kind of that's what it looks like it's a really really cool stone and I think it's interesting because I, when I was reading about it I thought it was gonna be like this is for power and this is you know to carry when you need courage and to defeat people that are trying to harm you and to get all of your energies up and really it's more of this like peaceful stone it promotes inner peace Especially when you're dealing with a lot of anxieties, it helps to really bolster peace in your life to bring more of like a harmonious um, approach to dealing with things and to just bring harmony and balance into your inner world and your spiritual world. It also really promotes like extra joy in your life. <laughs> like I wasn't expecting this 
at all, but it's this really beautiful stone that does these really beautiful, quiet things for the self. Um, it really bolsters, I'm using the word bolsters a lot. It really increases or works to increase your happiness, your joy. Um, you know, just feeling all of those wonderful feelings that are easily, that easily comes to us when we have an inner peace within ourselves. I also thought this was really cool. It is a stone that can help you camouflage yourself and kind of hide yourself in a crowd when you do need, and I mean, not just like physically being in a crowd, but like when you need to kind of just hide away from the world, it's one that can help you to camouflage and hide yourself in the way that snakes can. Um, and really just let you dig into your own moments when you need like peace and privacy. I thought that was great. I, that's why I need it. You know, I don't, despite, like I always say, despite my jobs, I don't really necessarily like having a lot of attention on me. I like to have a lot of privacy and peace. So I'm like, where's the stone? Where have you been all my life? <laughs> it also really helps to increase your self-awareness, your sense of self and your self-confidence. It really brings all that up because, you know, that is really related to us having a, a sense of peace and having happiness. And it also is really good. I love this for um, helping you find things or persons that are lost. So if you are like, man, I don't know where the hell I put my wedding ring down and I can't find it anywhere and I'm going crazy, grab that piece of snakeskin agate because really it might help you find the thing that you're looking for. It also is a big healing stone. So if you're going through issues physically or emotionally or spiritually, you know, spend a little time with it. And it definitely works with healing and also with longevity and giving more like kind of breathing more life into something. So I just thought it was this really lovely stone that I had never even heard about until I was, you know, doing this episode and thinking about snakes 24 seven. And it's really beautiful. And if any of you work with it out there, please let us know what you think of it. Post pictures if you have it. I would love to see different versions of it because I obviously I'm just kind of seeing the one right now. But yeah, that is our crystal of the week for our girl Medusa, our witch, our goddess, our, our WOC, our witch of color who we love so much. And I think that, oh, do you need homework? Mm, I feel like you don't need homework because I just gave you a full assignment <laughs> to read and answer questions. <laughs> but if I were to give you homework, it's just that I would, um, if you feel comfortable, if you feel so called, I would like you to maybe hang out with the goddess Medusa a little bit this week and see if she has any messages for you or see if she's sending you any signs or symbols now that, you know, you've got her in the top of your mind anyway. But again, only if you feel comfortable, only if you feel called and kind of aligned with her. If you're not, then, you know, nothing to worry about. But yeah, so no major homework that you need to work on. But, um, and listen, if you do have a snake and you do um, practice snake work already, I would love to hear about some of your experiences. If you want to share them with the group, if you who was it? Ah, I forgot to write down your name, but you shared your snake with us. And it was just like the cutest little cutie. And I want to give it a kiss, even though I am still a little tiny bit afraid of snakes. But yeah, if you work with snakes, if you have snakes that are your familiars, if you have special rituals, you wouldn't mind sharing with the rest of the group. I would love to learn more about them because I really, there's something going on with me and snakes. And I feel like I, oh my gosh, I just remembered I've been having dreams about them. All I, I've, I've been having dreams about different guys from my past, like every night of my life because the moon is torturing me. But there was one where I was stuck in between two snakes and one was red and one was brown, I'm pretty sure. And it was like, if I went this way, then this snake was like ready to jump up and it wouldn't stop moving. So it was making me nervous, making me think I was, it was going to, what's the word? When a snake bites you, like lunge, lunge at me. And the other one was like kind of lying and wait in a coil, but I was still nervous to walk past that one too, because I thought it would still lunge at me if I, you know, got into its territory. 
And that's all I really remember about the dream. But yeah, snakes are becoming a really strong uh, uh, sign, current, uh, repetitive figure in my life. So yeah, if you work with snakes, I would love more information from you about it that you could share with all of us if you'd like. So we can, you know, just learn more about that type of witchcraft and that type of magic. So yeah, work with your girl Medusa if you feel like she's calling to you. Uh, you know, light a candle for her, talk to her, ask her for a sign, whatever it may be. I I just love her. I just love her to bits and pieces. She's the best. And you have your crystal for the week. And I think that is going to be it. If I'm forgetting anything, it's because I've been having the craziest <laughs> two, three weeks ever. But I'm trying to get back uh, into the swing of things with Bad Witch. And I'm just so happy you're all here. And I hope that you really enjoyed our Medusa episode and our start to Black Witch Story Month. And I can't wait to tell you uh, about Marie Laveau, who is who we're going to do next. I am very scared to do her. I'm gonna be totally honest. I not, I just, we'll get into it. But you know, I just get nervous telling these stories because I want to tell them the right way. And I want to honor these witches as, as much as I can. So I'm a little nervous, but it is a story that needs to be told. So I will be telling it. Um, but next week we're going to be going back to like, we're gonna do them every other week. So next week we'll be doing like a witch lesson kind of thing like we normally do. And then we'll get into our next black witch tree story, which I'm really excited about. And that is it for this episode. So if you want to join the Facebook group, the answer is the craft. Uh, Teespring is where we have our merch. I will put the link in the episode notes, patreon.com slash bad witch if you want to join. Also, if I owe you if you're I do owe you because you've signed up. So if you're ready for your readings, whatever level you may be at, um, just uh, DM me on Facebook or shoot me an email. I'm still behind on email, story of my life. But you can you can really just like send me an email or even go on Patreon and be like, hey, I messaged you on Facebook. Can you please check it? And I will check it ASAP. Um, what else am I forgetting? The Bowage Podcast at gmail.com. I'm forever behind on emails. And I know you still love me all the same, but I'm trying to get caught up. I really am. All right. That is it for this week. I really, really, really hope you enjoyed the Medusa story. I uh, hope you're really going to like what we talk about next week. It's something that I think a lot of us have been interested in learning about. And some of you probably already do it and do it better than me because I'm a beginner, but we'll get to it. Okay. I love you so much. You deserve good. Blessed be and goodbye.